G'day, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Ideas Digest podcast, where we explore political, religious, social ideas that divide us in order to do one thing, to try and open our mind. My name's Conrad, and if you're joining us live here on Instagram, welcome. Welcome to the live. Sometimes there's some uh, errors that we've got to solve and work through, but you're here for the ride. That's great. If you listen to the podcast, welcome to you friends of the show as well. Now, nothing divides people and society more, families and friends, more than a good old conspiracy theory. Uh, there is probably one thing that divides people maybe more than that, and that's like critiquing the person who told them this conspiracy theory. So the person that said, yeah, but I heard it from this reputable YouTuber. Like, oh, no, he's crazy. Don't you dare tell me. Anyway, that does also divide people as well. So in order to get into this idea a little bit more, let me introduce new friend of the show from the Conspirituality Podcast. Uh, new friend of the show, Derek. Thanks for joining us on Ideas Digest. Thanks, Conrad. Um Uh, grateful to be here with you we've just met you know we've done a bit of tech together we've got it running pretty seamlessly i reckon and i'm detecting the accent and i feel like you're from america somewhere i'm gonna guess like california ish i'm from new jersey which is not (laughs) the accent you have (laughs) the other other side i live in port portland oregon now uh, I live in Portland, though. I live on the West Coast. Oh, uh, I just, okay. I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> oh, you're from New Jersey. Okay. And you're living in Portland. That would explain the hipster beard. I guarantee you're some coffee drinking kind of guy. So is that true? Yes. Okay. Nailed it. Nailed it. So if we <laughs> were to, let's say, have a run into each other and it's at a speed dating event and you and I are talking to each other. I'd like to just ask you some very basic, very simple speed dating questions uh, and see how you go and get to know you that way. How does that sound? Sounds great. All right. I'm real original. We've just met. Derek, uh, tell me about yourself. I live in Portland, Oregon from the East Coast. Uh, I've spent my life working in media and content in a variety of fashions uh, for the last 30 years of my life. And the reason we're talking is because just over two years ago, I started a podcast called Conspirituality, which is about conspiracy theories in the wellness industry uh, with Matthew Remsky and Julian Walker. Uh, We've built it up quite a bit over these two years. Uh, We recently have a book deal with Public Affairs and Random House, and we've finished the book and it's coming out next year. And we are just focusing on continuing the work that we're doing, looking at wellness influencers who exploit their followings through a variety of different conspiracy theories, misinformation, or disinformation in order to uh, take advantage of them. Some of them at their worst start cults, but all the way to just sell them supplements and make money from them in a variety of different ways. So that's what we're tracking predominantly. Damn, that is the best answer to the worst question anyone can possibly ask. (laughs) Very well done on that one. Follow up, terrible question. I got it from the internet. If I was on the speed dating, this is what I'd ask you. Uh, what is your spirit animal? <laughs> well, in order to have a spirit, you have to believe in religion, and I'm an atheist, so that's a tough one for me. Oh, so if you had to just go through the store and pick one because you were forced to, which what would you pick? Oh, cats. I'm a huge cat fan. Some sort cat of fan. cat. 
<laughs> we knew it, guys. We knew it. He does have a spirit animal. It's just clawing its way into his consciousness as we speak. <laughs> the cat goes. Okay, fantastic. I don't know if you actually saw the t- little Tinder dating profile I kind of made for you on Ideas Digest. I put a little uh, bit of your information I just gleaned from the internet there. It's like replicates Tinder. And I put it out to friends of the show on Instagram. And they were kind enough and generous enough to... Before we can kind of hear what someone has to say, we have all these judgments about them. I'm going to be honest, Derek. I've just heard of the great, a really great intro to yourself right there, but I have, I have judged you. Do you mind if myself and friends of the show confess our assumptions to you and you can correct them as we go, true or false, what, however you like? How does that sound? Absolutely. And just so you know, I've never actually been on a dating app, so I don't know the <laughs> Tinder part, but every yes. everything else you said sounds fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, for the record, neither have I. Let's just get that on the record. Uh, okay. Well, <clears throat> my first one, I'll just scratch it off because you just said it. You're an atheist for sure. You've already... You've already confirmed that before I could even judge you. So friends of the show that put that one through, you nailed it. You got it in one. Next one. Derek, you're a vegan, surely. No, I eat everything. Okay, not a vegan. All right. Hence the no spirit animal because, you know, animals, spirits, <laughs> all, the, all the same thing. Uh, friends of the show, looking at your profile, they went, this guy is definitely a road cyclist. Yes, absolutely. You're in Portland. Derek, you definitely voted for Bernie. Uh, in the primaries, yes, both times. Jeez, these guys are good. I just digest <laughs> friends of the show. We're very good at judging and we're just going to confess them. Let's keep going. Yeah. This now we get a bit harsh, a bit mean. Some people confessing some things. Derek, you're like some skeptical know-it-all guy, the worst guy at parties. Uh, I am extremely skeptical. Uh, I tend to be a wallflower at parties, and I leave very early, so I would not be in the middle talking to people about things. I would try to be <laughs> finding my exit. <laughs> okay, okay, and um, so back to the atheist part. You must be this type of atheist that just hates any sort of religion, any sort of spirituality. It's all a hoax. It's all a scam. Dawkins grade, hating on it all. No, I have a degree in religion. That's my field of academic study. And I think that there is a lot of value and utility. In fact, I don't think we exist as a species without religion. Uh, I understand the impulse. And I think in terms of community building and creating codes of ethics and morals for societies. Religion is extremely important. I just get lost in the metaphysics because the metaphysics is often what divides people and thinking they have some access to something outside of our biological and physiological processes that others do not have. So that is my contention with religion, but the actual community aspect I think is absolutely beautiful. I also think that a lot of great art and music comes from religion and that spiritual impulse. Uh, If you were to see the rest of my office, there's plenty of it all around here. So I think there's a lot of value in religion. It's just when, once you get into dualism, that's when I get lost. So dualism, it sounds like you're saying, comes from the metaphysics, the thing outside the material that that is within probably a lot of religions. And you're saying this, like the metaphysics creates the dualism of like the, the yes or no, the, the very polarized, I have access, you don't. Is that what you're saying? 
Well, yeah, uh, metaphysics is a function of dualism. When you think that there are processes that exist outside of your own biology, that then you get into Cartesian dualism, basically. Although, to his, uh, to his credit, Descartes did say that uh, the brain is responsible for a lot of the physiological processes, but he also believed that there was uh, another something else outside of that. And that, that's where I differentiate uh, those terms. Mm, okay, okay. Very good, very good place to start. Now, before we continue down uh, this pathway, you have a podcast, and as you were saying, it looks at you know, wellness influences, people of influence who may be wielding that influence pretending they have special access or as if they have special access to something and taking advantage of people in a various different ways. And you're in the space of breaking down these tribes, these belief systems, these ideas that potentially can suck people in. If you were to sell me something that could make this world a better place, the one that you're critiquing all the time on your podcast, if you could package up an idea that's in your head that if I could just accept it, my life would be better. And if people could just accept it, their lives would be better. What would that be? That anecdote is not data. The fact that you have certain sets of beliefs is completely fine. And you can look for a foundation uh, and precedent as to why you have those beliefs. But the moment that you start to think that those beliefs apply to everyone else, uh, that becomes problematic. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm liking what I'm hearing. Now, if I'm in the car yard and you're the car salesman and that's the idea you're selling to me, that anecdote is not data. My experience does not mean that it's the same for everybody. Really, really amp it up. How is this going to make my life better? If I accept this, if I start moving through the world and through life as if my anecdote isn't everything, how is my life going to get better, Derek? Well, it's the foundation of empathy, and empathy is the pipeline to compassion. So if you are involved in some sort of spiritual pursuit, then hopefully the development of the skills of understanding other people is part of that toolkit. And so if you can understand what other people believe and have conversations with them about that, you will only broaden your own field of knowledge, which I think makes you a more well-rounded human. Uh, I happen to have been an international music journalist for 10 years of my life, and I got to travel pretty extensively around the country and the world talking to artists from basically every culture on the planet. And when you get the opportunity to talk to people about their beliefs, about their politics, about their spirituality, it just informs your own. And to me, the richest experience of life is when you can broaden your own field of knowledge. So I think that that is a good place to start. If you're in the pursuit of something, mm. what else would it be other than knowledge? And the, the best way to do that is by talking to a lot of varied and different people, often people who don't believe exactly what you do. And then you mm. can have dialogue. And importantly, to your point specifically, you can debate things. And I think with social media and the way that we function as a culture right now, debate is lost because debates don't happen in a tweet. It's not enough time to actually get into. That's why we love long form podcasting, because we have time to explore ideas. 
And I know that the reality is a lot of people don't have the attention span or the drive to really think about ideas. But for me, that's really the most beneficial aspect of having all of these technologies and all of this information at our hands. So that's what I hope to utilize and to help me more than anything else. And then we just share these ideas on the podcast. So if we're in the car yard, mm. then I'm hopefully going to say that, <laughs> you know, you, you, can, you can broaden your mind extensively by not mm -hmm. staying in your own bubble. Yes, I'm oh, that's a good sales pitch. I think I'm going to take it and just I'll hand you the cash. Give me the keys. It, because you, you, you're saying that if anecdote isn't data and there's more to the world than my experience, then I'm going to be curious about the experience of other people and I'm going to seek to learn to understand that. And then I build empathy. And when you said that, you mentioned the word spiritual pursuit. Now, as an atheist... How are you using and defining the word spiritual in that context? I can understand that impulse of the feeling that I am not my body, which is a common saying in the wellness industry. I, I totally get that. I've done psychedelics over 150 times in my life. I'm a big proponent of it. Uh, I did a lot more when I was younger. I still partake, but just not as much. But I understand that feeling. <clears throat> I just don't think that it is anything other than my biology and my connection with my environment that I'm in at that time. Because mm -hmm. I've, I've taken the same exact substance in different environments and had completely different experiences. So your environment and the people you're with and your own history is all going to inform your own pursuits and the ways that you move through the world. Mm -hmm. So when I say spiritual pursuit, I just, I understand that impulse, that yearning, that feeling as if the emotional pull of feeling as though you're part of something greater and that you can transcend your body. As I mentioned, I just don't believe that that is anything other than what the physiological processes in our body create. Mm -hmm. It still feels amazing. I understand that when you're doing yoga or meditation or different arts, you can have that sensation. Uh, again, I just get lost when you start applying metaphysical principles to it. Okay. So these metaphysical principles, like give me an example of that. Is that where someone says, I had this experience with God or this experience with whatever yogic practice and therefore reality is shaped like this or like that or there is this god out there or there is this something out there and reality is this way because of my experience is that what you're getting to when we're ascribing metaphysics it usually it usually goes along that way especially when you create hierarchies and organizations that are based around the feelings and sensations that people have so that is one avenue i mean when people have personal experiences in their yoga or meditation and they feel certain ways, I don't think it's fair to take that away from them. But once you mm -hmm. start saying that it must be this way, then it become, you, it's easier to become indoctrinated into different ideologies or different religious practices or cults when it goes down that pathway. So that's where I advise caution. Talk to me more. This is sort of where we're getting at as I look at your podcast and listen to a lot of your episodes. Talk to me about what you're exploring with regards to this indoctrination. You know, a lot of people will be listening and it will make sense to them going, okay, if you're part of a church or some kind of religious community, indoctrination, of course, happens. Is, 
Is that the limitations of it just within some formalized religions? Or is this indoctrination far more widespread given, uh, given where your work is taking you to wellness influences and all those things? Is this the same sort of thing that oh, we've more. seen in religion for a while and now we're seeing on social media? Well, far more widespread because if it stays in a closed system where it's only affecting the users or the adherents, that's one thing. And that can be problematic in terms of family relationships and such. But our book that we've just finished talks about how the wellness industry helped to create a public health threat. And specifically, the podcast was started the week of pandemic when Mickey Willis released the first version. And mm -hmm. I've actually been writing about anti-vaxxers for over a decade, but mm -hmm. tracking them through the pandemic changed everything. And so now when you add in this level of scientific illiteracy or ignorance, and then you're applying that as a spiritual principle, which is happening very much in America, we can't possibly track the number of deaths that have caught that has caused because people have listened to these people, but it's not negligible. There is definitely an impact that it has made on our politics as well as on our public health. And you can argue them our mental health as well as a society. So I think this far exceeds any sort of religious pursuit because it now it spills over into the domain of civics and one thing that I'm pretty certain about with America is that a lot of people don't really partake in civics, uh, voting mm. or, or taking part in any way in donations or taking part in the political process. And when you live in a democracy, it's pretty important that you at least get 101 into you know, your, your, uh, your local politics, your national politics on a level that is not only spreading fear mongering and disinformation all of the time. Where does this start then? You mentioned scientific illiteracy. Is that coming from when are you critiquing the influencer in, in that regard, like with, with regard to COVID and the health uh, epidemic that we've had around COVID? Are you talking about the influences scientific illiteracy or are you talking about the general population's scientific illiteracy that allows them to not fully understand certain things and get sucked in well both i mean we cover both but we're really looking at the influencers predominantly because they're the ones who are being held up as champions of ideology that's usually based around ideas like sovereignty or freedom mm -hmm. not about health mm -hmm. That's why we feature a number of doctors on our podcast. Imagine you spend your life 10 years in school from your undergrad degree through medical school. You're probably very in-depth, but you've focused all of your energy and time in understanding something. And then you see someone on YouTube say, yeah, that's all bullshit. Like, don't listen to them. Listen to me. And people actually are listening to those people. Um, that's mostly what we cover. There's a various range of people. I mean, again, we, talk, we talked earlier about skepticism. I think skepticism is very important. But I also will trust people who have dedicated their lives to furthering the pursuit of science more than I'm going to uh, listen to someone who just throws on a video camera and starts riffing off the top of their head on YouTube. Are these ideas that you're critiquing now, is it in the same camp as formalized religion historically? Is it a new version of what we've seen 
in historical religion of like controlling people and bringing people into a certain worldview or perspective and then and then influencing how they shape how they see the world i think we're at a different space on uh what Kevin Kelly called the long tail, which is the influencers at the top. Like there's a very few people who have very vast amounts of power. And then as you go down the line, he applied this to musicians specifically or artists, but as you go down the line, you have, uh, you know, people who have a thousand people who follow them, but they'll, they'll devote their lives to them. So they don't have the same spread of influence, but to those thousand people, they're extremely influential. And I think you're seeing more and more of those mini burgeoning cult leaders who are coming around, who, who have smaller audiences, but are very, but who captivate them in a way that, you know, the larger cult leaders like a Bikram Chaudhary, for example, you know, that was someone who was able to uh, very much monetize his crowd on a global level before all of the scandals began. Mm. But now what we're seeing is just a lot of people who, again, could have dozens or hundreds of people, but they are extremely important to them. And you're seeing more and more of them. In fact, the number of direct messages we get at Conspirituality like tuning us into people we've never heard of is really overwhelming to me. Uh, every week I'll find out about three, four, five new people who have their little cults in Bali or Costa Rica or in Texas, and they're trying to start something up. And it really just seems kind of endless at this point. So we generally focus on the bigger people who have larger platforms, but mm-hmm. this is a widespread problem. Okay, so these people that do have large platforms, clearly something they're saying is appealing and pulling people into their world and also gathering really loyal and devout fan bases. Uh, I don't know if you've probably encountered those fan bases when you critique these people. I know of some of your episodes, you've critiqued Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, Sam Harris, Trump... And these, these are people that have massive followings, like you're saying, but also very loyal, uh, what is it, followers, I suppose. What is it with the number of people that follow the people I've just mentioned, just to name a few, what sucks people in? Something is, something's working. What is it? Well, let's backtrack a little bit because we are three different podcast hosts with different ideologies, even though we all track left in terms of our politics. So Sam Harris, Sam Harris, for example, I'm a big fan of. Uh, Matthew had a critique of him. I didn't necessarily agree with that critique, but it doesn't mean I like everything Sam says. I don't, but that kind of gets to the crux of it. Uh, There are people who I disagree with but I'll still listen to all the time. I watch Bill Maher every week. I don't always love what he says, but I love his guests and I love his approach. So I think that's important. And that's sometimes what gets lost because I've critiqued Rogan on certain things, but the reason I got into podcasting was because of him. I was a big fan years ago. And I think you have to weigh those things out. You've you've cited more of the political class. Most of our work tends to focus on the Mickey Willis's, the RB Marcus's, the Christiane Northrup's, like more wellness-based influencers. But we do mm-hmm. look at thinkers and psychologists and podcast hosts 
who have some connection to wellness. And that's, that's mostly what you just referenced. Now, mm-hmm. in terms of their audience, you will often find, again, because of the medium of social media, a lack of nuance. So that if I'm critiquing, which is what happened to me a few months ago, if I'm critiquing one thing about Joe Rogan, You'll get a number of people being like, you can't, it's a sacred cow. You can't critique them in any capacity. And I'm like, well, no, I actually like these things over here, but this thing I have a real problem with. So let's just look at this. But what aboutism is rampant on these platforms that we use? So as soon as you say, what about this? Or as soon as you say, let's look at this, you're always going to hear what about this. So I'll give you the, the most common example. We yeah. are all vaccinated. We're pro-vaccine because we're pro-science and, in my view, pro-common sense. But a lot of people are not, especially in America right now. And so we get labeled as shills for big pharma. Now, my last book was on psychedelic therapy, and half of the book was talking about the problems with the pharmaceutical industry and the ways that they monetize mental health interventions, mostly Mm -hmm. around benzodiazepines and SSRIs and SNRIs and the ways that we do therapy. That's something that I focused my journalism on for a few years, and it's very important to me. I have no love for pharmaceutical companies in general, but when I had cancer... I was really glad chemotherapy exists. So again, it's a conversation that requires layers that you have to peel back. And so to get back to your question, when you attack somebody who the hardcore fans, they're going to take that as an insult to their person. It doesn't even matter that there's an actual debate that could be had. Uh, It just, it's, automatically negated because they feel that you're attacking their hero and so therefore you're attacking them in some capacity which changes the nature of how we communicate in a problematic way to me Mm -hmm. so to the wellness space then what creates the this sort of following that has the sacred cow mentality being like you you can't critique this because it's because like you're saying, you're saying, okay, there's nuance in here. I like what has happened over here. Joe Rogan, like kind of good conversationalist, all these things. I just like what he did in the wellness space when he brought on this guy to talk about vaccines. I thought that was really harmful. You can't critique that. To the wellness space then, where these people are popping up on Instagram, everyone with a good advice on how to help you in some way and monetize it in some way. What brings people into that space to the point where there is no critique welcome? What, what kind of category is that the category of guru that you're talking about? What they're really able to do well is to create a sense of trust with their followers. And we feel before we think. That's just how we're built as animals. So the sensations that we feel will predate when we start to think about it logically. So when someone can go on and start talking about how there are these forces that are against you, and maybe it's someone like, let's take again, Mickey Willis, for example. I used to be a journalist, but now I I know how the sausage is made, and now I'm going to tell you how it's made, and I'm going to give you the real truth, because that's what he does. That's how he manipulates people. Mm -hmm. And... 
you see a lot of that. This idea, there are these four, the media is lying to you, right? I worked in media for a long time as a, as a reporter. And I'll tell you that there's no cabal of journalists. These are all competing organizations trying to break stories. There's no deep state of journalism out there. There's a laziness, I will say that, especially in the digital age in journalism. But there's not some, they're not in cahoots trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. The same thing, I worked in an emergency room of a hospital for two years. Doctors and nurses aren't all conspiring to get you sicker. That's just, pharma executives might be trying to monetize you, but that doesn't mean that the people doing the research and the work are out to get you. But wellness influencers take advantage of that feeling. You've been hurt in some way. There are these forces lined up against you, and I'm going to tell you the truth that they're afraid to tell you. And so they build up this sense of trust with people. Uh, I just talked about this the other day where if you go on someone's feed and they're looking right in the camera and they say to you, I care about you, although you've never met them, that should be your biggest red flag first and foremost. Because there's no way that someone you've never had interacted with that you can actually care about them. It's That is manipulation, pure and simple. But you'll see it over and over again. The, the straight eye gaze into the camera, these different keywords that just kind of drive a sense of feeling of it's classic cult indoctrination they're going to break you down these forces are against mm -hmm. you and then they're going to build you up we're here i'm here for you and i will make you whole again and you see this spy this this cycle over and over again uh although now it doesn't happen in brick and mortar spaces it happens uh predominantly online so why does that work then why does this person online that we don't know that says they care about us that's telling us and and i suppose tapping into that feeling of maybe i've been hard done by or my I've, i haven't been served that well by the current medical system or this drug didn't work on me and so there's there's this distrust why why do we go to these people do we go for some sense of security or 100 percent knowledge in something what are they what are they offering that pulls in so many people and so much money? There's a lot of different answers to that. One I think about often is trauma. Uh, I would say that Matthew is much more knowledgeable in that particular space. But from my observations and research, people who have been traumatized, whether it's sexually, physically, manipulated in some egregious way, they will look for people who can help them. And, and maybe they've gone through the medical system and it didn't help them. Maybe they've gone through psychiatrists who just put them on a cocktail of drugs and they just felt worse. And so here you are have it with someone saying all of those, like Kelly Brogan is a perfect example. All those drugs are bad for you. We're going to get you off of those and I'm going to fill you with wisdom, which is going to make you whole and complete. Uh, in America, the number one form of book or genre of book is self-help books. And the funny thing is that the number one way to tell if someone owns one self-help book is if they own more than one self-help book. Now, you probably only need one if it really worked, but you'll look at some bookshelves and they're just filled with these self-help books, right? And they get onto this cycle. Oh, I have this meditation. Oh, I have this protocol. I have this workshop. I have this retreat. I have all of these things to get you deeper and deeper into their system. But there's not necessarily any resolution ever because 
people aren't really, uh, they're just bringing you into this pipeline of constantly being sold to, but Mm -hmm. they come into it because they've probably been hurt somewhere in their lives. Uh, So that's one avenue of, to answer your question, but the ways that people find things, I mean, one way is your, your partner dies, you know, or your parents die and you realize you're going to die at some point. Um, you've been physically injured and you're trying to get better. There's a lot of different pipelines into it. But I think in the wellness space specifically, it's usually people who have just been hurt in some capacity and the conventional ways of healing aren't working for them because in America, we have a for-profit medical system and it really sucks and it doesn't help a lot of people. And so therefore they look for other avenues, not realizing they're getting exploited in those as well. Mm -hmm. Does our culture fit into this at all? Like, do we have a culture of feeling inadequate that we need these self-help books, that we need a guru to give us the secret to life? Is there something in our modern consumer capital culture that primes us, whether it's an increase or whether it's just now we have social media, so these ideas can be broadcast to more people? What's your take on culture fitting into that? Absolutely. I was talking to a friend about this just yesterday, and it's something I've been very critical of for a number of years, which is the number of plastic surgeries and Botox treatments that Americans get. Uh, It's this constant, I don't feel good who I am, so I'm going to hide these wrinkles. I'm going to change this part of myself. And it, and increasingly, I've been criticized before, and I understand the impulse is that more women than men get these treatments. But the reality is more as a percentage, not as a number, more men are getting these treatments and surgeries now than women. Just as a percentage, it's still a smaller number. But that just shows you that there is this cultural impulse. Again, look at these mediums we're on. We're on a camera right now. So people will do anything mm-hmm. to look exactly a specific way on that and then they start manipulating parts of their body and that has emotional effects if you constantly feel like you're not good enough then you're going to look for anything that will fill you for a moment to feel that you are good enough at that moment and the wellness uh, industry completely relies on that And it's a massive industry. We're talking tens of billions of dollars a year spent on wellness products that are all meant to optimize people. When in reality, I also worked in in fitness for 17 years as an instructor of a variety of modalities. And I spent a lot of time like looking into what you need. I mean, if you have enough nutrients, if you get enough sleep, If you drink enough water and if you keep your stress levels low, your body is going to do everything it needs to do to be healthy, right? But the way the wellness industry puts it is this supplement, this vitamin, this herb is going to make you even healthier as if it's Mm. possible. And so that's how they get people that people always want to be optimized in some way. Uh, So you have two Mm. different sort of trains of thought there, but one is that feeling of inadequacy, and then the other is that feeling that I need to be better than better in order to feel okay. And those two uh, drive a lot of the sales and a lot of the indoctrination that we talk about. Yeah, the the forces you're describing, at least how they're coming across to me, is this 
society built around consumerism. We have these algorithms and, and these stories being told that I need to be a certain thing. And not only do I need something to solve the problem that I think I might have, I can buy this product to do that. It's almost like the cell is on steroids and it's not only going to like solve it, it's actually going to make, if I can solve this, then I'll be whole and complete. It, it sounds like, it sounds like the wellness industry is tapping into the forces of consumerism and marketing that have been around for decades. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, look at, uh, uh, there was a term earlier that, that came on very early in the pandemic, which was pastel QAnon. And that was the QAnon pipeline through hashtags of like people who set up their Instagrams in certain ways. So when you go, you have certain color palettes, you have these very bright and warm feelings that you are that are invoked when you go to their page. And that's all a sales technique. I mean, and and nothing wrong with, you know, being design oriented or, or looking a certain way. That's I'm fine with all that. But when it's used in, in the service of getting you to buy their products and services, then that is a bit manipulative, manipulating to me. Um, so mm. I would say that the wellness industry very much relies on the same consumeristic sales techniques because that's the culture. That's what we live in. So the idea that there's an industry detached from that is impossible. And in reality, I'll say this, I, I taught at a chain of uh, gyms in America called Equinox, which very much uses that sort of marketing to be clear. Like they very much are going for that sleek, optimized look. But I also taught mm. at YMCA's. And you're not going to become a big influencer at a YMCA, but what you are going to get is you're going to get a crew of people who just want to feel better for the day. And that's okay. There's a lot of that that happens all over the world where very people who are just teachers who are trying to make other people feel better in their skin. And I think that gets overlooked a little bit because of the massive amounts of attention we give to the influencers at the top level, who, the Tony Robbinses, uh, who are just like, you have to be the best you ever. And they, they just suck up all of the oxygen uh, when it comes to the sales techniques of what we're talking about right now. So along this spectrum of a product that could be healthy and helpful being sold on Instagram and these kind of purity codes, wellness industries that demand or, or promise to make you whole and complete. How do we, how do we know, or, or I suppose maybe even beyond that into the land of conspiracy where the odds are stacked against you. There's an elite few at the top controlling everything. And you're the guy that knows like, you know the truth and, and we're going to stay in our little tribe and that's going to bind us together because we, we know the truth. It seems like, yeah, that uh, along that spectrum, how do I know when I'm getting sucked into to certain things? Because I suppose I mentioned this when I was talking to Debunk the, the Funk recently. We have really good examples of when big pharma have let us down when we've been lied to about a certain wellness product when medicine has failed us you know purdue pharma that's the, this is the example i brought you know opium epidemic this is a big failure marketing government systems it all failed us so so you know five years before this opium epidemic kind of came we worked out what went wrong and these factors that ended up with millions of deaths across the world 
someone might have been saying the exact same things. Oh, government's been bought off by certain things. The, the profit motive incentive from Big Pharma is problematic. Um, and they could have been poo-hooed as conspiracy. And because of that thought experiment, I, the next thing, COVID or whatever it is, how the hell do I determine whether I'm being sucked into this person that I think that has a really good worldview because it fits my anecdote and the things seem to line up and their analysis really works? How do I know when I'm getting too deep in? There is a variety of ways, and there's a lot of ways to answer that question. The first ones to mind are if you're looking at a research study, a science study, you can go online and look at the people who wrote it, and then you can find their ties to any sort of financial incentives. Like there are websites that do that, that will show you they were paid off, they were paid by this company to do this. Uh, that's really important. Um, you can do look at meta analyses on different topics because one study is never going to be enough. So you have to look at co larger cohorts. The challenge of that is that people don't take that amount of time. They don't even read the abstract yeah. of the study. They just see a headline. So that's one difficult barrier that we have to deal with. Uh, a little more specifically to wellness influencers, as I said, if someone's promising to take care of you and make you whole, that should just be a red flag. You know, mm -hmm. I, coming, having taught yoga for decades of my life, I can say that my own experiences is it's helped me to de-stress. It's made me more mobile and flexible, and therefore I feel better and have less pain in my life. I feel comfortable saying that. I can say, oh, there's been some research on meditation that shows that it might reduce anxiety, and maybe that's something good for you. You should look into that because maybe it's helpful, but there are a number of meditation techniques, so maybe you have to try out a couple. Maybe this one doesn't work and you like this one, and I think everyone takes to something different. I feel very comfortable saying those things as an instructor. What I wouldn't feel comfortable saying is there's this one meditation technique and you have to do this one because that's the only one that really works. There's a lot of other ones, but they don't work. This one is going to make you enlightened. So you have to go down this route. Um, if I'm looking at yoga and I say, yoga is the best weight loss protocol that exists. Like it's been shown by a bunch of studies. So you just have to believe me and come take my class three times a week for the next six months and you're gonna lose 20 pounds, I guarantee it. See the difference between those approaches? Mm. Like the second approach, if you're listening and you want to lose some weight or you want to be less anxious, you're going to be like, oh, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Although I didn't pitch it that way, but you're going to, oh, I got, I got to, I got to do this. This is going to do it. And then you're going to get into that like recurring cycle. Like I said, because in six months I'll be like, oh, you didn't lose the weight. Oh, you weren't doing it right. Well, you got to do it this way. Let's, let's go down this program mm. now. Whereas the other way is more just being like, I know some things. There's some things I don't know. There's some things that researchers don't know, but it seems like it could be helpful. So try it out for a while. See if it works. And if it doesn't, maybe it'll, it'll find another avenue. The problem is that's not sexy. It doesn't land with people the same way. It doesn't grab your attention. It's not going to make you stop the scroll on your Instagram feed. Mm. But it's true. And if someone's overselling or promising you things, 
especially if you've never met them and worked with them one-to-one, that to me is really problematic. So that's those are the things I always look for, mm-hmm. just being honest with the evidence. Mm-hmm. You're pointing at follow the money, look at the incentive structures. How's this person making their money? Yeah. And, and uh, trust people who are going to be more less definitive in their approach saying trying trying not to over oversell i suppose or, or have the 100 percent cure all for everything seems to be these red flags as you were mentioning you know what's going to stop that scroll how does the algorithm fit into this because as i can imagine it we have these people on instagram running a business right like i'm, I'm imagining once upon a time marketing was the, was the realm of marketing was the realm of the corporate elites they had enough money to push uh, propaganda campaigns we can kind of believe it but now instagram seems to have democratized like now i can have my own personal business i can put out my own messaging and you're gonna see it and these people as they're trying to grow their business grow their following how does the algorithm fit into this because as i'm thinking about it now i'm seeing people starting a health food company in the edging into the wellness space. Oh, if we eat more healthy vegetables and things like that's really good. Uh, not getting enough clicks. Oh, the algorithm is nudging, nudging us in certain directions. And do you think the algorithm is part of the problem in creating this epidemic of wellness influences that are overselling to the point of being problematic for public health? The algorithm's a mess. Uh, I had a friend tweet at me the other day. I tweeted something and he tweeted back at me and he said, I'm a beat you on a cycle race, like just joking around. We were talking about something and, and he got flagged because he said, I'm a beat you. And he got the post taken down because the algorithm read it as, Oh, that must be violent. Right. So the algorithm, and that's just one example. There've been times because I'm generally a sarcastic person and I'll say things and I'll get flagged. And I'm like, I was actually kidding, but there's no nuance on social media. And so when you're in a space without that lacks nuance, that lacks the ability, I've always said there should be a sarcasm font, for example, which allows you to bypass the algorithm uh, or the, the checkers Helvetica, on that. anyone? Yep. <laughs> as long as it's not papyrus, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> the, um, but when you're dealing with binaries, and there's been, uh, this research goes back so far in American politics, Uh, about why JFK won the election because TV was a new medium and he was just so much more attractive. Like we are so focused, like we are pulled toward binaries all the time. Like think about that. You're listening to candidates speak, but because someone's more attractive, you're going to listen to them. Mm. And that's been shown. uh, Studies have shown that men who are taller get positions easier, right? And this is like built into our biology. These are cognitive biases that we have to deal with. And they then translate into the algorithms, right? Because, because we tend to focus on those things. I mean, was Tony Robbins six seven? So if you see this large, powerful man, you must imagine what he's saying is true. And I feel like the algorithm is just that in Tony Robbins in a digital space, right? It's just like this booming presence that demands things and it pulls people in certain directions. And it, mm-hmm. it rewards bad behaviors. You talked about incentive structures, but 
it rewards that type of behavior. Attention rewards attention. Um, mm-hmm. There's a congresswoman here in the U.S. called Lauren Boebert, and she misspelled America the other day. And someone actually said she does the misspellings so that people actually boost her algorithm. And I don't know if that's true or not, but good tactic. That that day, America was trending the way she spelled it on Twitter, right? So a number of politicians right. know that and use it, and they 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 will think that the small sacrifice of their intelligence to people who don't like them anyway isn't worth the attention that they'll get that the algorithm rewards them with. And you see a lot of people gaming systems once they understand how they operate. And it's, it's, it's a challenge we're going to have to continue to deal with. Jeez, Derek, you paint, as I'm listening, you paint a bleak picture of humanity. <laughs> now I'm hearing this, this idea that, we have biases. I'm going to believe the bigger, taller, booming voice on stage. I'm going to listen. Studies show that if he's more attractive, I'm going to think he's more authoritative. If someone's standing on a stage, I'm actually going to listen to them more. There are all these psychological hacks that have been proven that you're talking about that's that's saying, I cannot be trusted to make the best decision and I can be easily fooled. And so this picture that you're painting is, if I boil it down, it sounds like you're saying to me, Derek, you can't trust yourself. You're being gamed by an algorithm and you better bloody be careful and spend a lot of time researching shit because you're going to be sucked in to some charismatic, good-looking, definitive person that's giving you all the answers on Instagram and you're going to be wrong. This sounds... It sounds depressing because I could just listen to somebody else that tells me, listen to myself. I know the truth. I know the answers. It's all inside of me. I don't need to look at anyone else. Why is that much, so much more of an appealing message? Well, first of all, it, it reflects in our numbers. I mean, we've grown the podcast to a considerable level that I'm very, I never expected. Now that said, it's still dwarfed by the influencers we cover, right? So yeah. you have to, like, I, I am so happy we found Follow a lot the money, of Derek. <laughs> who like to think critically about these things. And, and to attend that, I'm extremely optimistic in general. I just, I, I posted on Twitter the other day, I, one of my earliest heroes was George Carlin and I got to interview him when I was 23 years old. So I talked about that experience a little bit, but he's very much a template for me of somebody who thinks critically about things, but looks at life optimistically. And I'm still, I mean, I'm actually in a very good space in my life in a lot of ways and I feel good, but there is a longstanding anti-intellectual strain in America. Now, we, one of the first things you asked me was like the pursuit and that spiritual quest, and I brought in knowledge. And the ability to take a lot of different ideas and weigh them together and put them together is my meditation. Like that is what I love doing and it makes me feel complete and whole. But I like to look at things and try to piece things together. And you know what? Sometimes I jam in pieces that don't fit and I think they do and then I have to pull them apart. Um, And that's part of the process. The challenges on social media, and this will answer the second part of your question, the challenges on social media is that because everything's instantaneous and there's always this attention economy that exists there that people are trying to get to, you're not allowed to make mistakes. You're not allowed to have, you can't have nuanced conversations. You can't have multi-part conversations because sometimes an idea needs to be fleshed out. And if you're, it's kind of like when a comedian 
goes on the tour before the tour, before the Netflix special. Like there's a lot of working out of material that has to happen. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we do that on our feeds. Like we're working out ideas, but people take that as the final idea. And working mm-hmm. in that space is very challenging. Now, if you are an influencer who is trying to game the system and to monetize people, you are always presenting what as the final answer like here it is i have it let's go like here's the answer you've been looking for and when you're presenting in that medium in that way it's going to make people feel much more drawn to you because you're projecting a certain sense of confidence in what you're saying and i don't think that actually reflects how humans think like we need to work out these processes over long periods of time um completely random, but I was in a local bookstore yesterday and I met a man. He saw I was uh, buying a book by Polanyi, an early uh, 1940s uh, Hungarian-Australian economist. And he he happens to be studying economic theology, right? Which is sort of a field that I'm working in in some ways, uh, full-time. And he said, yes, I've decided to devote the next 30 years of my life to the study of this field. And I looked at him and he was probably about my age, like late 40s, early 50s, maybe a little older. And I was like, wow, this is so refreshing to see someone who has said, I am going to do this. That is not the world that we operate in when we're talking about online influencers, right? That is, he is never going to have an Instagram account with millions of followers talking about economic theology. (laughs) It's just, I I mean, interested, yep. He, well, some of some I will be. I want to follow this up and go back there and talk He's to got him. Two. But 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 when you're talking about having scaling millions of fans, mm. you have to you have to have the ideas distilled into a 15 second soundbite that is just going to grab people right away. And unfortunately, that's the environment that we're playing in. Mm. It it sounds like you're saying that the the forces of social media are kind of pushing us away from the tools of intellectual conversation and engaging with ideas that further understanding of things, the algorithm of modern society, whether that just be in the physical world or in the digital space seems to be the stream current running the other way, pushing us away from long form, deep conversations. Yeah. A few breakthrough, but mostly it's got to be 15 seconds. It's got to be catchy. It's got to be simple. It's got to be definitive. When I package all these things together, friends of the show might be thinking, all I'm hearing you say, Derek, is that I can't trust myself and that what I'm supposed to trust like scientists, like this, as if there's this one way, one size fits all for everybody in the scientific space. What would you say to friends of the show that hear you say that? They they might point to history and go, look, look what happens when people hand over all their personal autonomy over to a religious machine, a political machine. You know, it sounds like you're saying I can't trust myself and I have to hand over my authority to the intellectual elite, I suppose. And that sounds dangerous to me. What do you say to that? Uh, I want to give an anecdote first to kind of Great. set that a way that I did that and then maybe awesome. broaden out a little bit from there. But as I mentioned earlier, I had testicular cancer and the surgery took care of the cancer. But then my oncologist wanted to do two rounds of chemotherapy and it wasn't necessary, but it was preventive. And I said, okay, let's start with one and see how that goes. And just one, it was pretty brutal, I'll be honest. And then I looked and then I went and looked at certain publications found the impact factor and I looked at meta-analyses about 
rounds of chemotherapy for testicular cancer. And it turned out that the difference between getting one or two rounds was almost negligible, under one percentage point. And both of them were above 96%. And she admitted she was being extra cautious. So after the first round and I got over that, I went in and I saw her and I said, I looked at these things and I don't think I'm going to do a second round. And she goes, okay, I understand that. You've, you've looked at the right research and you've made a good decision. And I also told her, I said, you know, after my surgery and the chemo, you gave me a prescription of 30 pills of Oxycontin with three refills on it. So you gave me access to 120 pills of Oxycontin. I threw out the first bottle you gave me and I just used edibles, marijuana. And I felt fine after that. And I was like, I know as a medical professional, you are hamstrung and you can't say certain things, but I just want you to know that that's really dangerous giving someone that much pain medication when I didn't, I was only in pain for like a day or two and I was able to take care of it myself. That requires a lot of things, right? That requires mm-hmm. a lot. Because some people might have just started taking pain medication and be like, oh, this is great. I feel wonderful. And kept going. that's what you said earlier about the opioid. That's how it mm-hmm. happened. And I felt it important. And I really loved my experience, especially going through something like cancer, which is life changing. But I felt really good that she received it in a good way and just being like, hey, mm-hmm. this is where people have problems with this industry. And I don't think it's healthy for people. Now, that gets into the issue of trust and why you're right. It is very difficult to trust yourself. Um, that is something that I don't have an answer for, but it's uh, but it's extremely important to be able to develop self-trust before you can trust outwards. So all I can say to that is really... If you're talking specifically, again, about a medical professional, if you don't like what someone says, get a second opinion. It happens all the time. You don't have to stay within one doctor. Just don't go look for a second opinion of someone who is going to tell you what you want them to tell you, right? Because that happens a lot. We search for we search for sources that verify what we believe already, and that's really dangerous. But that said... Every doctor that I know who I think is credible knows that they're fallible. They don't have final answers. They're going to present the research they have, and they might say, you can go on and look at other doctors, but just look for people who are credible and aren't trying to take advantage of you. And it's not easy because there are a number of doctors who are trying to take advantage of you. Uh, I would say they're a minority, but they exist. And working in that space is very difficult. I think fine as a final point, I just still don't think that humans are able to operate in social media yet. I don't think we have caught up to the mediums. The fact that I can talk to you across the world and you found me and we reached out and now we're having a great conversation is awesome. But there are so many other applications of these technologies that are problematic that it's going to take our psychology and our biases a long time to catch up to and understand. Uh, and mm. I don't have an answer to how we work that out. Hmm. Have you always stepped away from this idea of the metaphysics? Have What led you to this idea where you looked at 
the metaphysical question being problematic. Were you ever religious and became an atheist and introduced to these ideas? Was there a moment that you went through and went, this is the, this is the best way of operating in your experience? I mentioned psychedelics earlier, and most of them were done when I was in college. I went to a college called Rutgers University in New Jersey, and that is sort of what led me. I kind of found religion as a field of study and psychedelics around the same time. So they kind of converged, and they they work together, obviously, as we know. Uh, I was not brought up with any religion whatsoever. Um, My dad was raised in a Russian Orthodox church. And later in life, when I asked him why he didn't really raise me with any religion, he said, because I had too much of it. And I wasn't going to do that to my children. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I felt fortunate because I, I kind of started studying religion without this idea that any one of them was right. Now, I spent two years as the religion reporter for the school newspaper. So I would interview a Jewish leader and I'd go talk to an imam and I, I talked to a priest, I talked to the Buddhist society there, and I would just go place to place and talk to different people for different stories because that's what I was studying and what I was doing in my career was journalism and it all worked together. And what I saw was each one of these individual pods, again, they had strong communities that I really appreciated. But there was always a sense that, as Alan Watts would say about Hinduism, that this one has the secret sauce. Like every one of them was like, yeah, there, you know, there's many, but this, this way is the best one, right? And it made me think, if you all think you have the best one, and there's such a variety, I mean, there's over 2,000 types of Christianity that exist in the world off of one book that also serves another religion with many different strains. Maybe there's just too much happening here. And there's the, that's when I started studying neuroscience. And I studied neuroscience as a journalist for a long time. And I started thinking, okay, instead of thinking about what religions teach, why do we become religious in the first place? That became a very interesting question to me. And that was the period. So, yes, I was I was never religious. I never had a religion. I would say Buddhism is my favorite one. It still is in some capacity. But that metaphysical idea really changed. I, I did have a sense of metaphysics in college when I was doing a lot of psychedelics. But once I started studying evolutionary psychology and neuroscience, I was like, oh, you know what? There, there are some answers to why we have these feelings. It's not like there's, there's just... We just feel this way and then no one knows. Like people st- that devote their lives to studying this and they have come up with some conclusions here that are on solid ground. So I feel like a lot of times when people say, when they either say no one's talking about this or no one knows, they just haven't actually looked because there are, there are people mm. who've been studying it for their entire lives and they haven't looked at that research. They would just rather... Mm. In, celebrate their ignorance in a way that makes them feel good. And I, I don't think that's really progressive. I like that phrase, celebrate their ignorance. Okay, interesting. When someone says no one's looking into it, you're saying a lot of the time it's out there. You just need to go looking because people have probably looked into it. Um, well, just today on Twitter, someone uh, tagged us on Twitter responding to someone. And, and I see, I actually see this at least once a week, sometimes more. Someone will say, why has no one talked about the wellness to QAnon pipeline? 
And then one of our listeners will reply, be like, uh, actually, they've been doing it for over two years every single week. <laughs> right. And th- yeah. that's OK. That's that's fine. But it it makes me wonder when that person decided to tweet that. Did they not actually go look to see if anyone had talked has been talking about it? <laughs> Or had they just not come across it and then therefore they thought, wow, I've just discovered this thing and I'm going to put it out in the world as if no one has talked about it yet. And, mm-hmm. um, and, I, and I think, you know, we do have Google. You can, you can look things up pretty quickly uh, and see that, yeah, some people are talking about these topics. Um, so I, I think that's pretty important as part of social media etiquette. Mm-hmm. I don't know how quickly you can sum this up, but that is an interesting pipeline that seems to exist. Even I had a friend on the show, uh, Pete Evans, you may or may not have heard of him. He is an Australian famous chef and he recently got in trouble for that seemingly going down that pipeline, the wellness to QAnon. What is the commonality that draws that connection? Well, in his case, and a lot of people's cases, uh, anti-vaccination fervor definitely fueled it. Um, Specific to him, I know he had some other issues and he was with the commune that he was trying to start, um, or at least, you know, buying land in Australia and starting that. Um, But anti-vaccination still remains uh, one of the major pipelines that brought people that brought the right and left together at this time um coming from the right the suspicion of government conspiracies coming from the left this idea that your body is sovereign and that nothing pharmacological could possibly help you uh even though uh herbs and supplements and vitamins are all chemical at root Mm. um but so that that seems to be the pipeline that brought a lot of these worlds together. It's what helped us create the podcast. Mm-hmm. That that connection sounds almost political in the sense of government is telling you what to do, at least very much so in Australia, those heavy mandates. And that seemed to connect the libertarian right and the wellness or progressive left uh, individual bodily sovereignty. Seem, it seems to be that political connection there or something that mm-hmm. united them. It's called horseshoe theory, which was developed shortly after World War II or during World War or just before World War II. Sorry about the Nazis. But horseshoe theory is the idea that the farthest part of the right and the farthest part of the left, like Hmm. in the center is down here, but they will come together and and meet in terms of their sentiments at some point. Derek, so many more fascinating rabbit holes that I will resist dragging you into because I could go for a long time on on this sort of stuff (laughs) to see what you think. Um, Final questions, two of them. How, how do you see these wellness influences and these very, uh, I guess, f- people with large followings maybe spreading disinformation? How do you see them? Are they these malicious people just looking at the numbers going, I'm going to make as much money off these suckers as possible? Or, or are they, you know, innocent people just following the incentives that are in front of them? How, how do you view them from your perspective? You've just asked a question that I've been asking since we started the podcast, and I don't think there is any one answer. Uh, I think it's both, actually. I think some people don't believe what they're saying at all, but they have, they're making more money or they have more attention on them than they've ever had in their lives, and they're exploiting it. And however they can sleep at night and justify that, I don't know, but that's what they're doing. And then I think there are, is also a cohort of people that truly believe the things that they're saying and 
they don't the money and the attention is almost secondary. Like they're enjoying that getting more people, but it's actually just justifying what they're saying. It's not because they're trying to necessarily monetize their following is growing and they feel empowered because of the messaging and everything else is secondary. And I think that's a case by case basis. I think there are certain ways to identify it, but um, usually that happens uh, with us when we're in touch with people in their circles that they don't know about and we find out some things. Uh, so that's usually more on the manipulation side and there are some of them out mm-hmm. there. Um, but on the full-on belief side, uh, that that's, a, that's always hard to tell, but I would definitely think that some people are fully indoctrinated themselves, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you think they see you when they see you kind of critiquing them, calling them out, these wellness influencers? How do you think they look at you, your show, your podcast, and what you're doing? There's a range. Uh, we were recently critiqued by someone, uh, not me, but Matthew, with someone who was like, oh, these these are people who are just using our influence and trying to gain their own influence by doing that. Uh, and again, okay. which is pretty good tactic. Is, I like it. You know, it's just fine. You know, that's it's it's fine. And again, I can just say, look at the numbers and you'll see the differences. But um, okay, yeah. uh, some people are, are truly just think that we're leeches and that they don't understand how we can possibly criticize them. Um, again, getting into the knowing some people in the circles, they're they're very frustrated that anyone would critique them. And so they lash out uh, whenever they're criticized, not just by us, but by anything because they are holier than thou. Um, And occasionally some people uh, think it in the spirit of debate. And a couple of people that we've criticized have either come on the podcast or we've had DMs with who we don't believe things, but we actually had civil conversations either online or offline. And... Mm -hmm which I think is the healthiest way to do it. Um, because I think the danger is some some of these people think that we're attacking their person, but we're actually criticizing their ideas. Mm-hmm. And that is a very different thing. There's not one person that we've covered on the podcast where I personally am like, I hate this person. I feel like I would fight them or what, whatever it is. I don't feel that, but I do think if you're going to put ideas out in the world, you have to be ready to defend them. And as I mentioned earlier, the wellness space specifically deals with a lot of people who've experienced either trauma or low feelings of self-worth or self-esteem and any sort of criticism on them feels like an attack and they can't debate ideas because they treat their anecdote as data and so therefore anything that is criticizing them is just a existential threat to them. And I think that that gets into dangerous territory as a society, <laughs> as we are seeing, but on a, on a personal level too, it brings up real feelings of contempt, uh, which I think is dangerous because I know from our end, we're not putting forward contempt, we're putting forward criticism. Uh, and mm. being able to differentiate between those two, I think is very valuable and important. Uh, and that's not always so apparent. Mm-hmm. You've preempted my very last question and half answered it. What What is the worst that can happen if people don't buy what you're selling and continue to use anecdote as data? 
what is what's the worst that could happen for the individual and for society uh, on a large scale i don't know i i think about that often i think about what a civil war looks like in the 21st century uh, mm. i don't think it's national i think it's regional but i think it's possible and Remember one other aspect we haven't touched on and we don't really need to is that we have 328 million citizens in the US and over 400 million guns and only a third Many guns. of Amer only a third of American adults own a gun so if you have 400 million guns and you have 77 million gun owners that means that there's every gun owner has on average five guns ish and hmm. that on a bigger existential level is frightening to me. Uh, obviously we're going through the insurrection trials right now. That is a very real thing. Um, mm -hmm. on a, on a smaller scale with the influencers, uh, I mentioned commune, you know, earlier in, in regards to the, you know, the, the um, sort of society that Pete Evans was involved with, but there is also one in Austin outside of Austin on Lake Travis that people that we've covered, have bought some land and they're starting a retreat center with four armed guards, according to the owner, on, on the premises at all times. And they are pitching themselves as a medical freedom commune where you are a sovereign person. Some people can live there. Some people can just go for the weekend for a retreat or a workshop. But when you're creating like little societies within society that is that are armed, that have very specific agendas and that think they're on a sacred mission. Well, we've seen this throughout history, right? We've seen Jonestown, we've seen different cults. Like we, we've seen mass suicides. We've seen uh, Osho here, not far from where I live now in Oregon with trying to poison the town's water supply. Uh, we, we've, we have case studies of what could go wrong. Uh, I'm not going to speculate specifically on this one, but I will say an medical freedom commune that's armed um, does hint at potential danger to me. Mm. Sorry, I know I said last question, but the picture you're painting is a pretty dire worst case scenario, especially in America with such an armed population. Have you ever changed anyone's mind? Because I, I remember you mentioning that, you know, emotion is the most compelling way and these the numbers speak for themselves. The people that can tap into these emotions and take advantage of our human biases, they're the ones that do really well. And like you keep joking at, you're looking at your numbers. I'm just wondering, is critiquing people's ideas, have you ever changed anyone's mind that way? Saying, hey, mate, by the way, look at the data. And they go, that data is cooked by Fauci and everyone in the CDC or whatever, that's a hoax. Have you ever been able to change someone's mind? I would say dozens at least. Uh, we've actually featured some people whose minds we've changed on our podcast. Uh, specifically, they the majority of them are parents, predominantly mothers, who are anti-vax, who got into our podcast and then really looked at things and then got vaccinated and got their children vaccinated. So yes, we, we have had situations where that hap has happened. Um, we have a number, I would also say that more than that, we've had a number of people DM us saying that we have given a framework to help them understand what happened to their yoga teacher that they loved. 
or what happened to somebody who they followed that went down this path. Like they, they were so taken off guard by it being like, what's happening? And then found our podcast. And then they were like, oh, that's how it happened. And that has been helpful to them as well. So I would honestly say that's the most gratifying aspect of this work. Besides working with Matthew and Julian, which I love mm-hmm. um, just on a personal level because it pushes me and it, it, these conversations. And there are so many debates we have on Zoom and Slack that never make it to the pod that are very intellectually fruitful. But in terms of an outreach, uh, having people say, you helped us, that's, that means more than anything. I love the anecdote, Derek. Um, show me the data and I'll believe you. So where can people find your work? If they Obviously, we touched on so many interesting topics that you know, I could go on for a, long, a, a much longer time, but I won't. Where can people find your stuff, uh, the podcast, maybe some of the guys you're working with? Uh, conspirituality.net has everything. Uh, that's where our podcast lives. Uh, individually, we're all on Twitter and we're collectively, we're on Instagram at conspiritualitypod. Uh, so those are the major places. Fantastic. If you've made it to the end of this whole episode and you've disagreed with the whole damn thing, then congratulations. Well done. Just send me a DM and I will send you a golden emoji. You've earned it, mate. You've earned it. It's hard to listen to someone you disagree with. If you just agreed with Derek the whole time, then I guess good job. I'll send you a bronze emoji. You spend that however you like it. But if you have any ideas that we should dig into and try and understand a little bit more, send them through. Digest at gmail.com. Thanks, Derek, for joining us on the Ideas Digest podcast. Thanks, everyone, who's tuning in live on Instagram. It's been great to have you here. I didn't check any of the questions coming through. I got a bit distracted. But thanks, everyone, for joining us, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.